in the Pew Bible, 1019, 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22. 2 Peter 2, 17 through 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, by, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open up our hearts, you would open up our minds to receive your word. We ask that you would use these words to nourish us and strengthen us, that we might love Jesus and live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. We all recognize how our actions impact other people. The choices we make, the decisions we make, not only affect ourselves, but others. Some positively and some negatively. There are varying degrees of how one's actions affect others. But and we all know that there's, this is true, and countless examples could be given, I'm sure, to, to show this. What we do for a living, where we work, where we go to school, where we live, who we marry, how we use our finances, what activities we get our children involved in, what we say, how we react to pain or trials. Right? Our actions impact others. And in our text this morning, Peter highlights how false teachers, counterfeit Christians, have a negative impact on the lives of others. He describes their characteristics, their outcome, and their effect on others, right? We've we've seen this throughout this second chapter. And he does so so that the church might be certain of the existence and danger of the false teachers and of following their way. So first, and you can see this in your outline, false teachers leave people parched and void of spiritual nourishment. Okay, so, so look with me at, at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So Peter declares that they are waterless springs. They are mists driven by a storm. In the ancient world, in, in the heat of a day, and the exhaustion that one may have experienced from it, we probably wish we had some heat today, people would, would seek out springs, right? They, they would seek out springs because they promised water and nourishment upon arrival. For a false teacher to be a waterless spring 
revealed their deception. They promised water for a thirsty soul only to leave them parched, only to leave them unsatisfied. There was no refreshment for their soul. People were coming for water only to find none. They return with their vessels empty. They leave people ashamed and even confused. The false teachers were characterized like Israel of old. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord declared, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These false teachers were also mists driven by a storm. In other words, again, they did not produce the life-giving water that the land needed. False teachers did not bring a message that would produce life or sustain life for the thirsty soul. Proverbs 10, 11 says, But the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Right, the righteous point people to the righteous one, right? who gives living water, who truly satisfies. As Jesus said in John 6, those who believe in him will never thirst because the water that he gives in John 4, the water he gives will become in him a spring, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, false teachers had a negative impact on those whom they influence because it only leaves them dry and weary and then they do not provide the nourishment that they need, that we need. They do not help the needy or the thirsty. And in the end, the outcome of these false teachers is final judgment. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. As we, as we apply this, when we teach, we should therefore strive to refresh those who are dry and weary. We should strive to point people to Jesus Christ who gives and sustains life. And I am thankful here at Pleasant Ridge that that's what I see happen. Sunday mornings, the Sunday school teachers, Wednesday nights, our leaders on Wednesday night do that. Second, false teachers promote sensuality and promise freedom but deliver slavery. False teachers promote sensuality. They promise freedom but deliver slavery. Notice verses 18 and 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The reason the false teachers are headed to future judgment and the gloom of utter, utter darkness is seen in their actions. They speak loud boasts of folly. Instead of their words being filled with truth and substance, that would sustain someone and nourish someone. Their message is filled with foolish and empty words. Their speech would have, been, they would have displayed confidence, certainly, but it was futile. 
Like Jude 16, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. They enticed people. Their persuasive speech and their promotion of sensual passions was used as bait to to lure in people to their ways. They promoted a lifestyle that valued the sensual passions of the flesh. Right? These passions would have included sexual immorality, gluttony, and drunkenness. And the point, the point is that the false teachers would appeal to the gratifications of the flesh in order to entice people away from the truth. And specifically, they have a target audience. Did you catch that? They enticed those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This would refer to people who had just escaped from the worldly lifestyle around them. They had recently come out of the unbelieving and pagan way of life and have been converted to Christ. So the false teachers were targeting baby Christians, so to speak. Those who weren't completely grounded or established in God's word. These young Christians would have still been in the process of distancing themselves from the pagan lifestyle around them, in which they still lived in the midst of it. And so the false teachers were enticing them, promising them freedom. And likely they were promising them freedom to live however you want, to live in sensuality and the passions of the flesh. Perhaps... Perhaps they were twisting the Apostle Paul's teaching and using God's grace as a license to sin. They might have said in in, in some sort of nuanced way, you are free to continue to sin and enjoy the passions of your flesh so that grace may abound. They promised them freedom, but they themselves were slaves to sin and corruption. They promise freedom, but deliver slavery. The false teachers were slaves of corruption. They were entangled in moral corruption, likely sexual in nature, and they had been conquered by it. Their denial of future judgment allowed for this kind of lifestyle, right? We're going we're to even see that next week. Their denial of future du- judgment would have allowed for this sort of lifestyle. If there is no concern for judgment, why not live however you want? Why not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? And yet, this lifestyle did not provide freedom. It actually delivers slavery. They were, they were overcome by their corruption. They were controlled by it. They could not defeat it in their life. Whatever defeats us and conquers us continually, to that we are slaves. We are all slaves of something. Whether it's a slave to sexual sin, money, fear, food, or the praise of people, we are all slaves to something. Jesus Christ died on the cross 
so that we might be set free from sin and become servants or slaves of him and to him. And we are to not let sin reign in our lives so that we obey its desires. But it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We must therefore not submit ourselves to a yoke of slavery. The false teachers offered freedom but delivered slavery as they approved and promoted a life being controlled by our fleshly passions. Their teaching and their lifestyle were harmful. And the negative impact they have on others is that you end up being a slave of corruption. Those who encourage someone to sin are likely in some way a slave to sin themselves. But we have been freed by Christ in order to serve Christ and live for him. Let's remember that. Let's be established in the truth and commit our lives to Christ as Lord of every area of our life. Let's give him dominion in our lives. Third and finally, and we're going to spend most of the time on this final point. False teachers can lead people to a worse state in the end. False teachers can lead people to a worse state in the end. So look with me now at verses 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness, Then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. In this section, we see the consequences of turning away from the truth. The consequence of rejecting Christ after once professing to know him and be in a relationship with him. We see here that the false teachers, false teaching that rejected Jesus and returned to the corruption of the world leads to a worse state than the first, and it reveals the true nature of a person. These verses can be quite difficult to understand, and certainly there have been debates probably time and time again over these verses. I'm going to do my best to unpack these verses so that we can see what's being said here in order to rightly apply it. So first, who is Peter referring to in these verses? Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It could be that Peter is referring to those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, back in verse verse 18. But it also could be, and I think more likely, it's a reference to the false teachers. In context, they are the subject of this entire section and the entire chapter. These are waterless springs in verse 17. They entice by sensual passions, verse 18. 
they promised them freedom, verse 19, and then in verse 20, if after they have escaped, and in chapter two, verse one, there will be false teachers among you. And yet, they denied Christ, are characterized by sensuality and greed and arrogance, and the outcome for them is condemnation. Right? We've seen that throughout the chapter. These false teachers were among you. So they were within the midst of the church. They didn't come in as false teachers. They were at one time professing faith in Christ. To be among you meant that they were members of the church. And Peter even describes them with Christian language. They have escaped the defilements of the world. And back in, you recall back in chapter 1, verse 4, you can turn back there. Back chapter 1, verse 4, Peter says to the believers that he's writing to that they have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then how else, how else are these false teachers described? Back in our passage, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ was the means by which we, they, escaped the defilements of the world. And just, just like Peter said in, in, in 1.3, God has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of him, through knowing Jesus. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Through knowing Jesus, we have escaped the defilements and corruption that's in the world due to sinful desire. Peter is using Christian terms to describe these people. But what happens to them? The end of verse 20, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. They get tangled into the web of defilement of this world. They're overcome and enslaved to, to sin again. They return to the ways of the world. They reject and refuse the way of the Lord. And Peter says, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, he doesn't actually say in what way, right, the last state is worse than the first. But it seems like the first state, being an unbeliever, isn't as bad as a person who professed faith in Christ, who then returns to the corruption of the world and rejects Christ in the end. This seems worse. This would be worse. It's likely that Peter is actually picking up on Jesus' words from Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Just listen to these words. This is Jesus speaking. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. 
and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The evil spirit leaves a person and then returns finding that things are put in order. Things look cleaned up, so to speak. But then it takes residence up again with that person along with seven more other evil spirits. Seven more evil spirits. What was the point of the story? Jesus was describing this evil generation. The Pharisees had hardened their heart toward him and were leading people away from Jesus. They sought to get their house in order. They attempted to follow God's rules and regulations. Outwardly, they might have looked clean. Right? They, they, were, they, were, they were the religious people of the day, weren't they? They thought they could clean up their own lives themselves, and it sure looked that way. They were moralistic, legalistic, self-righteous. And this was the place that unclean spirits then returned and took up residence. And that last state was worse than the first. As Peter says to the church in verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. These false teachers and their followers were in a worse state in the end because it would have been better if they had been ignorant than to know the right way, the right path, and then turn away from the command that they had been given. Perhaps the last state being worse than the first, there is worse than the first because people will be judged on the amount of light that they are given. Right? You see this in Matthew 11. Even teachers, according to James 3.1, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's also possible that the last state is worse than the first because those who are exposed to so much light, those who knew the gospel and had some experience in the Christian life are more difficult to be restored to Christ. Imagine trying to talk to someone who abandoned the faith. And perhaps you have. I have on numerous occasions tried to share Christ, to which they reply, been there, done that, didn't work for me, it's not for me. Those who abandon the church, those who reject Christ after once claiming to know him, are very likely, very unlikely, to return to the truth. And they will face final judgment if they do not repent and return to Jesus. So this was a situation at hand. And then, Peter summarizes and clarifies what's happened. And I think this last verse is essential in understanding what's going on with the false teachers and their followers. Okay, look, look at verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter picks up on Proverbs 26, 11. 
Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. As you may know, dogs in the ancient world were not a man's best friend. They weren't that cute, cuddly little pet. They were despised and unclean beasts. They would roam the streets. They would eat scraps from the garbage and then return to what they had left behind. Being called a dog was an insult and was a way to describe those who do evil. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs, as David's, for, for dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. Matthew seven six, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, "Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs." lest they trample them underfoot and turn it to attack you. Philippians 3, 3, 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs, the, those who do evil, those evildoers. What is true of the dogs is what has happened to the false teachers and those who follow them. The dog returns to its own Vomit. Just as a dog eventually goes back to that which is disgusting, so also the false teachers return to their own vomit. They return to the evil and the corruption that they left behind. Peter here now gives us another proverb to reiterate his point. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The pig, after getting washed, goes right back to the mud. Pigs, as we know, were unclean. They were unclean animals for the Jews. And so this unclean animal gets rid of its dirt. Outwardly, it's cleaned up. And then what does it do? Returns to its mud enjoys it, rolls around in it. So what's the point? The dogs and the pigs always, eventually, return to their own unclean filth. It's in their very nature. It's the nature of a a dog to return to its vomit. It's the nature of a pig to return to the mud so also it's the nature of false teachers to return to their filth, to return to moral corruption and sin. They were at one time outwardly and visibly connected to the church. They would have professed faith in Christ. They would have been baptized. They would have joined the church. They gave the appearance of being a Christian, but they did not persevere. They did not remain. Instead, they rejected Christ. They were cleaned up on the outside, but their nature hadn't really changed, and eventually they act according to their nature. I think that's what's going on in these verses. It's, this seems to be Peter's way of saying what John, the Apostle John, said in 1 John 2 regarding the Antichrists. Here's what, here's what John said. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out 
that it might become plain that they are all not of us. You see, John's more clear. If some leave the Christian community and reject Christ, their departure shows that at some level, they never really belonged. You see, I find it interesting. I find it interesting, at least interesting, that the part that Peter left, I don't know if you caught this, the part that Peter left out in his description of these false teachers from, from chapters one, chapter one, verses three and four, right? Through the knowledge of him, they escaped the defilements of the flesh, of the corruption of this world. The part that he leaves out in this section was the phrase that they have become partakers of the divine nature. Interesting, at least. There are three kinds of people. Three kinds of people. There are true believers, the sheep. There are unbelievers, the goats. And there are wolves in sheep's clothing. False teachers, counterfeit Christians. And by their fruit, you will recognize them. Their actions will reveal eventually and over time what they really are. I think that's what's going on in light of the many passages of Scripture that speak to the need for believers to persevere to the end, to receive final salvation, and God keeping us to the end. So both and. Both and. We can have full assurance that we will receive final salvation when we first trust in Jesus Christ. Let let me just give you a few. All right, lots of scripture coming at you. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, completely, and may your whole spirit and soul be kept, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will what? He will surely do it. 1 Peter, right, this author, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, We're being kept, it's being kept in heaven for us who by God's power are what? Are being guarded through faith. We're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Last one, Jude 21 and 24. Keep yourselves. Keep yourselves. That's a command, not a suggestion. Keep yourselves yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 24, so keep yourself in the love of God. Verse 24, now to him who is able to what? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. We act. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. We are to make our calling sure by living for Christ and by growing in godliness. And we see that in 2 in Peter chapter 1. And 
God keeps us. God sustains us and he guards us. He will hold us fast. We can have full and final assurance of eternal life as we remain on the path of righteousness. Now, a word of application. In light of all this, application, right? A word of hope and a word of warning. First, a word of hope and encouragement. Perhaps the words in this text, I'm gonna cry. Because I know it's not a perhaps. Perhaps the words in this text you feel like describe your son or your daughter, or a parent, or a spouse, or even you. Professing faith in Christ, and then turning back. Stuck in the mud, and the filth and corruption of this world. Let me give you a word of encouragement and hope from an Andrew Peterson song in which he reminds us of Jesus' words from Luke 15 regarding the sheep that was lost. There were 99 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare. Away from the tender shepherd's care. Away from the tender shepherd's care. Oh, thou hast there, oh, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? But our shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered away from me. And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. I go to the desert to find my sheep. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through where he found that sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die. Sick and helpless and ready to die. But all, the, all, all through the mountains, thunder-riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad, glad cry at the gates of heaven, rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed, angels echoed around the throne, rejoice for the Lord brings back his own. Rejoice for the Lord brings back his own. I'm certain that some of you have experienced this. Some of you know, perhaps someone you know perhaps has taken two steps back and you're wondering, when are they going to take three steps forward? 
or they've wandered off the path a thousand steps. The Lord knows how to rescue his own. Remember who is writing this letter. Peter. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times and yet was restored. Remember, Peter reminds us of righteous lot in this chapter. I've talked to some of you. Righteous lot? Who, though living in the midst of sin, was even hesitant. When you go back to Genesis, he was even hesitant to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. He, the text says in Genesis 19, he lingered and the angels seized him and God being merciful to him, they brought him out. I thought this happened to my dad. He was lost, had no hope of returning to the Lord. I saw it firsthand, this text. I felt the weight of this text that wouldn't even allow for any possibility to leave the vomit or the filth and get cleansed from the inside out. Growing up in a church, leaving the church 20 years later, hadn't returned to the church only to find Christ on his deathbed. I think about October all the time. That was the month my dad died. There is hope. There is hope. And now, a word of warning. Why follow those who return to the corruption of this world? Why put yourself back in the filth that you left behind? Why return to your vomit? The picture is appalling. It's disgusting. Why return to the mud? This does happen. People set out on the Christian faith and don't finish the race. And he doesn't say, uh, notice this, he doesn't say, well, at least you made a profession of faith when you were young. He doesn't say it. At least you were baptized. At least you joined the church. The concern for Peter is how are they living now? And that they're not giving in to the false teachers, but living a life of repentance and following the way. And so as we apply this, this warning should motivate us to encourage and disciple each other, right? And commit to each other to, to help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and to take the warning serious in scripture. Do you see areas in your life where you need to remove yourself from the air of this world, where the filth and defilement and vomit that at times entices us. Do you see areas in your life 
where you need help and encouragement and discipleship, do you see the call to help each other live for Jesus? It's not optional. This is a call for all of us to be on guard against following after the ways of this world that are so enticing. I'm not saying they're not enticing. They're so enticing. Thinking that we can be right with God and live however we want. This is a call for all of us to repent, right, and to get busy helping one another to know Christ and to make him known and to hold fast to Christ until the end. That's my hope. I know we fall short, we fail, and Christ will hold us fast, but let's keep holding to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's a lot in this text. There's a lot in this text that we are reminded of, of, of the impact of false teachers that seek to lead us astray. They seek to lead us away from living a life that would please you and glorify you. I pray that we would not fall into that trap. I pray that we would not return to vomit, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, that we would hold fast to Christ, knowing that you hold us fast even when we fail and fall short. And I do pray also for any of us here that are struggling, that are stuck in the mud, that you would pull them out. They would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. And you would change them from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.